I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What a way to start a Monday morning. The Celtics win. Not just any win, I mean they whooped butt. Like from start to finish, there was there was no worry in my mind from about four minutes in the first quarter. Final score, 112 Boston, 94 Toronto. Don't let that fool you. That game weren't that close for majority of the time. Toronto went on some runs. Boston managed to stop them before they got too tough. Toronto only won one quarter in the entire game, and that was the third, and they won it by two points. The rest of the time, Boston were in control. I'm joined by my boy, Mr. Tim Shields. Mr. Wayne Breeze is out doing some work right now, so he can't join us. But we're going to be here to discuss what we saw in the last game and then kind of figure out if this was an anomaly or is this going to be more of the same in game two. What up, Tim? Nothing much, man. I kind of riding out that wave after that game. I, I'm not like a shocked, but I am pleasantly surprised that it came so easily. I expected more of a fight in game one. Me too, to be honest. I was... um. At the end of the first quarter, when they were quite big, I was like, how is it? Look, there's going to be a run in the second quarter. There's got to be. How how have they kind of rolled over so early? I mean, don't get me wrong. Boston came out swinging. They were jumping on every matchup. They were jumping in front of everybody. On offense, they were getting their looks early. They went to Jalen Brown quite quickly as well. And then Toronto started like hedging Brown high up the floor to stop Brown getting the ball. Tatum was cold. So I was like, this lead is unsustainable. But it wasn't. That lead was completely and utterly sustainable. It was amazing. There's a lot of talking points I want to hit on, but I'm going to let you lead the way on this one. I'm going to be a polite host of the show. Thank you. Thank you. Very courteous. Very kind. I will say, I think the big thing for the Celtics, just looking at the quarter-by-quarter scoring, Celtics came out with energy in the first quarter. They came out hot. And generally, when the Celtics do have a good first quarter, that bodes for a good game. And that's what it ended up being. As you said before, Toronto only had one quarter where they outscored Boston. Uh, 31 to 29 in the third. But other than that, all the other quarters were very close. Second quarter, Boston uh, 20, Toronto 19. And then we had Boston with 24, Toronto with 21. So very close scoring. But that first quarter makes all the difference in the world for setting your tone. Yeah. And the thing is, like, Toronto's main quarters are the second and third. They're usually going to come out hot early in the second and they're going to come out hot straight after halftime. Neither of those things happened. Toronto tried to make a few different runs. They came out in the second in a zone defense, which really threw the Celtics off their swag. I think it was like six minutes in and the Celtics had six points. It was ridiculous the way that Toronto clamped down in the second. But Boston got lucky because Toronto weren't making their shots. You were talking about the best team, the best offensive team in transition in Toronto coming up against the best defensive team in transition in Boston. And it just happened that Boston were that little bit more on their game, on their defense, than what Toronto was on their offense. And Boston were finding a way to score. So Toronto were clamping down, but Boston, in the first, they were finding open mans in the corners, and they were trying, getting a few three-point shots off, and then a bit of high-low play would free up someone down low. In the second, they struggled because they had to get used to that zone, and Toronto were playing rough. In the third, it was dribble-drive penetration from start to finish in Boston's favor. Toronto were really struggling to contain Boston once they went to that dribble drive pen. In the fourth, it was kind of a mixture. It got a bit scrappy in the fourth quarter, man. Uh, the tech on Ibaka, well, sorry, the flagrant on Ibaka. A few fouls down the way. Brad Stevens slowly started hedging into garbage time and then kind of fully embraced it with like a minute 30 left on the clock. Defense um, for Boston was probably some of the best defense we've seen since they entered Disney. I tend to agree with that, um, especially when you see how Boston's come out against some of these higher-seeded teams. 
even with that Milwaukee loss, they came out with a lot of energy in Toronto. So far, it's so good. It's been, you're looking at two of the best net rated teams in the bubble, especially in the postseason. One thing I will say with Boston is they definitely need to focus on maintaining those turnovers, keeping them under control. There was a point in the second quarter where Boston was getting a lot of turnovers forced. Kudos to Toronto's defense. That allowed them to get back into the game a little bit, but you definitely have to control it more if you're trying to win. And I just think they have to win that turnover battle. They got really, really lucky with Toronto in those shots. Well, that was the thing. I mean, Boston was turning the ball over just as much. Boston finished the game with 22, 22 turnovers. So Boston turned the ball over almost double what Toronto did. Toronto only had 14 turnovers. But again, it's Boston's defense. They were getting back in time to, to kind of slow down the Raptors. Now, we said on a different podcast, I think it was either myself or Wayne that said it. it might have been you. I'm going to give you the credit otherwise. That you have to make Toronto play half court. You can't. You can't try and beat them in transition. You have to make them slow down. So what Boston were doing was, no matter when it was a rebound, a turnover, or just a normal offensive possession, they were getting back and getting set up before Toronto could get into their space, which meant that Toronto had to rely on their shot creation and facilitation, which isn't where they're at strongest pace. And the length that those guys have got really does lend itself towards transition basketball. The Celtics can run all day long and they have enough length to play off ball and kind of get those deflections like Tatum was doing and get up underneath guys on the drive. And it's frustrating. And you could see that frustration start to boil over early for Nick Nurse as he weren't happy with how tight Boston were playing them. But 22 turnovers needs to be cut by at least minimum 10 for the next game because you can't expect Toronto to be missing these shots all the way through this series. Yeah, having the expectation of them getting a little bit better as this series goes on is without question. Boston kept it close to the rebounding. They beat them up 10 to 40, or uh, by 10, 50 to 40. And then in terms of shooting for free throws, as much as Toronto was getting called for fouls early on in that first quarter, Toronto ended up having the free throw differential. Boston was 17 for 21 for the line. Toronto was 22 for 29. And overall for three-point shooting, Boston had seven more makes and they took one less look. 17 for 39 from three versus 10 for 40 from three uh, with Toronto. So. I don't expect Toronto to miss those shots very often. I don't know how much of it is, you know, game one jitters versus Boston, a team that in the bubble so far, you know, they took them in game one and they beat the back out of them in those eight games warming up for the playoffs. So um, my first instinct before was I don't want to say after that first matchup, maybe Toronto has more in the playbook. Maybe they're trying to, you know, lull Boston into this false sense of security, don't want to show your hand. But then they come out in game two, and it doesn't go the same exact way, but Boston handles them again. And they ran away in the first quarter, and they just kept them at arm's length the entire game. I don't know what Toronto has to do in order to change on that. Maybe capitalizing on turnovers is a good start, hitting your open looks. But the fact that Boston came out and now get two games, two matchups versus Toronto, and they manhandled them. We start to call that a pattern. I wouldn't call it a pattern after two games. One was a seed in one was game one. Toronto have had stinkers in game one. They said that on the ESPN broadcast, actually. So I'm kind of using their words there. So I'll rephrase. Toronto suck in game one many times. They've really, really like stunk it up. If you remember last year, Lowry had a game where he went for zero. So it's not unusual to expect Toronto to come out and kind of like, well, suck in game one but it doesn't mean that's what's going to be what the series is going like when you're looking at it though like I really feared Siakam and I still do to an extent 
but I don't think he's going to be the guy that makes the difference. If anyone's going to wield this team forward, it's going to be Carl Lowry. Now, I said to you off air as well, when Serge Ibaka came in and hit those two big threes when, um, when he first got on the floor, I started to think this game's going to be tough. It just didn't go that way. You had Marcus Smart. <laughs> Marcus Smart was hitting shots, dude. Like, not just some shots. He was hitting shots from everywhere. It was ridiculous. What did he have? He was six for 10, five of nine from deep. So 60% overall, 55% on his free. Uh, 4-4 from the line, had six rebounds, four assists, but five turnovers, bro. He led the game in, well, he led the team in turnovers, did he? No, he led the game in turnovers. I'm kind of okay with that, but five's probably a bit too many. The one thing I do want to note before we start getting into the narratives from what we took from the game, this team can't throw lob. They should just stop attempting lobs completely and utterly now. Um, a bunch of their turnovers came off failed attempt. That one from Shemi as well, where it was on target and he just couldn't finish, was incredibly frustrating for me. Uh, more frustrating than the ones that didn't hit the target because that one was on target and Shemi had elevated enough that he should have been able to finish that play. Didn't really have much defense in his face at the time as well. But yo, this team just cannot throw lobs. Um, I'm all for no more lobs unless the receiving guys rub will. I think that's fair. I think we saw that for the most part whenever we saw a pick and roll with Rob rolling to the root to the hoop, you'd see him get the ball in the lane. But generally I don't want to see lobs anyway. I think I feel like most fans, most Celtics fans would probably say, Hey, I don't want to see lobs because one, you saw one of our star players get injured on a poorly thrown lob. And then two, we also don't throw good lobs <laughs> ever. It's a rare occurrence. I thought it was gonna get cut out a little bit when T Row left town, but that that clearly is not the case. So Unless it's smart to Time Lord, I really don't want to see lobs. I would much rather see them try and work on their outlet passing. You know, the one thing I will say, they did work a lot with those corner threes. They really did a good job of cutting the lane and immediately kicking out to the side wing. But there were a good amount of errant passes. Sometimes it was like, oh, hey, just guy wasn't paying attention. Ball bounced off of him. There were a couple times where, you know, Tice ended up getting set up in like the low block and you know, the pass was there, hit his hand, and then he just couldn't keep control of it. And then Toronto is just, as soon as they see like a moment of weakness, they're going to pounce on it. Especially a guy like Fred Van Vliet. He is just so stupendous at picking pockets. So if I'm Boston, you just got to work more on taking care of the ball. And it's twofold, right? Like we said, you know, you don't want Toronto to go ahead capitalizing on those turnovers. And at the same time, if Boston is, has the ball in their hands, they control the flow of the game. And as we said before, with the transition, you want to stop Toronto from scoring in transition because that's where they're going to thrive on you. And that's where they actually started to make a run in the second quarter was when they got those turnovers on Boston. As soon as Boston gets control of it, slows the game down, it's their game to control. It's their game to win. Controlling pace against Toronto is going to be crucial, especially when they've got that size mismatch on. So I want to jump into a narrative here, and it's a narrative that I kind of started speaking about a few days ago. It's a narrative I tweeted about yesterday. If you follow me on IG, I'll put it up on IG. If you don't follow me on IG, then why are you not following me on IG? Adam to the <laughs> NBA. Shameless plug. And that was Rob Will. I said that I, I believed, and I spoke about this, I've kind of willed it into existence. I believed Rob Will was going to be a better fit for the Celtics against the Raptors than what Cantor would. Because of the transition defense, because the way the Celtics are going to need to get out and run, and because they're going to need that vertical spacing when the Raptors set up their defensive scheme. Rob Williams came in, the first guy off the bench, first big off the bench. Enes Kanter did not play. You know, Vincent Poirier got time over Kanter. I know it was garbage time, but it was time, you know. Um, 
So it's one of those things where I was like, right, what does what Robert Williams offer you? What is he bringing to the table that Cantor's not? Now, we've just men- I've just mentioned some of the things. He's bringing rim-running ability. He's bringing athletic ability. He can stay in front of his guys. If he gets beat off the dribble, he has the space and length to get back and block shots. We saw that with one that ended up being a foul because he kind of come down on the back of, was it OG's neck? I believe so, yes. Yeah, came back down on the, like, chopped the back of OG's neck like someone. But after he already him. blocked him, though. Yeah. <laughs> like, he offers so much more in terms of athletic ability and ability to finish around the rim above the rim that he makes sense for this matchup. And he performed well. He finished, had another 100% from the field night following on from what he did in the seeding games. Only got two blocks, should have been three. But, you know, chop down on some dude's head, you're going to get called for the foul. Five boards. His rebound is quite weak. He's rebounded for a guy that's so athletic and so big and looks to have quite good muscle definition. Uh, he can get bullied trying to box out on dudes. That's a, that's a concern. I think it also has to do with the matchup. Like, we talked about that leading into it, where he's going to have to go against guys like Serge Ibaka and, you know, Marcus Gasol. And you're also dealing with... Pascal Siakam potentially going to the hoop too. So a lot of the minutes that he got out there, he played 19 minutes total. So that's what we're looking at. As you said, when it comes down to rebounding, you're looking at a situation where he had five total, three defensive, two offensive. So he definitely needs to work on boxing out for one. Two, this probably isn't a favorable matchup in terms of going against two of the better defenders and better rebounders in the league, especially when you're looking at bigs for at least in terms of track record. Like Serge Ibaka has been known for his entire career as being a rebounding machine, then adapted his game to be able to hit threes. And same goes to Marc Gasol. We've talked about this leading into this series a lot. So I don't think that's where you're going to be getting his minutes on. Like you're not bringing him in to be expecting him to be this rebounding machine. I think more so you're expecting him to be a threat to roll to the rim, a blocking threat. He's not going to be, the guy who's going to sit there and grab all the boards like an Andre Drummond kind of type, he's going to be the guy who's going to run the floor with you. Excellent passing, and that's what we've seen so far. I do want him to work in the rebounding game, no doubt, but it's definitely not surprising to me that he wasn't the best rebounder in this game. And for that, I also want to tip my captain, Daniel Tice, who had a double-double, 15 boards and, was it 12 or 13 points? 13 points. So, that's good. <laughs> That's good. I'll take that game out of Daniel Tice nine times out of 10. And he's very capable. And I, I, like I said, against a team like Toronto with the bigs that they have, I'm very, very happy with the big rotation. We even saw some sparing minutes from Grant Williams too. So I'll, I'll, I'll take this rotation. You know, it stinks. Stinks for Canner a little bit, but I, I can live with it. I can live with it. I want more time Lord. So it's the only way he's going to get better. And you know what? He's for all the mistakes he might make, he's worth it to have out there. So I'm going to touch on Daniel Tice after the break. So I'm not going to dive into that at the moment. What I will say, the one thing that Rob Williams needs to do is he needs to work on his hands in general. That's the one thing you know that you're getting when Kansas on the floor. He's got good hands. If you throw him a, a pass at pace in traffic and he can catch that, he will catch that. He's very rarely caught like dropping the, literally dropping the ball. Um, you know, for lack of a better phrase, phenomenal hands. Rob Williams had one turnover in this game. It was on a fast break, caught the pass in traffic, kind of upfaked as he was catching the ball, got Serge Ibaka off his feet. And that kind of pressure just forced him to lose control of the ball and it rolled out Toronto ball. And that kind of, you know, it was a lost opportunity on the break. Turns out it didn't matter too much. You know, Boston kind of gave them a bit of a slap and we were waiting to see how they retaliate in game two. But at the same time, 
as a big man that's going to be having to catch lobs, catch balls on the break, try and get the ball down on the low block and feed it out. There's going to be pressure, especially once you're shooting at the clip. He's shooting around the rim. If he's getting fed on a high-low play, then the defense is going to collapse. His hands need to be better. Only one turnover for this game, but I can envision that being more the more time he plays against this team and Nick Nurse gets a chance to scheme against him. As you said, they're going to spot that weakness and look to start down swiping on that ball whenever he's in the post or on the roll. So that's going to be something to watch out for over the next couple of games. We're going to hit break. When we come back, I want to talk about Kemba. I'm converted. I'm a big Kemba fan. Um, I wasn't. If you didn't know, if it's your first time listening, I did not like Kemba Walker. Now I think Kemba Walker walks on water. Um, I admit when I'm wrong, man. I admit when I'm wrong, you know. And we're going to touch a bit on Daniel Tyson, and I want to touch a little bit on the rotation in terms of minutes, and then we'll let y'all get up out of here. We have returned. It's glorious. We're back. Anyway, drugs aside, I want to touch straight. I want to jump straight into Daniel Tice. Tim brought him up before the break. I was kind of like, no, hold your roll, slow your roll, you know, wait, just wait. Now we're there, so let's talk about it. Daniel Tice, man, I mean, big boards, big numbers on the boards, big numbers on the glass. He suits this matchup better as well. He struggled against Embiid's physicality. You expect him to struggle a bit against Embiid's physicality. Now you're against Marcus Sol and Serge Ibaka that want to play out on the perimeter. This is Daniel Tice's kind of matchup. You want to try and beat him off the dribble, he'll stay in front of you. He's a phenomenal defender when you're coming in off the perimeter on the cut. He can rotate better against this this type of matchup than what he could against Philadelphia. And he showed it. I mean, what he finished with you've just you've just read out his stat line and it's completely gone out of my head. So let me 15 boards, 13 points. 15 seven boards. for seven from the line. Seven for seven from the line. And that's the other thing as well. He was getting to the free throw line. They played some high low with him as well. His little floater game needs work. I'll give it that. There was a couple of floaters that I was a bit like, that. you should be making that, bro. A big thing for me, he took two threes. That's fine. Didn't make either of them. I don't care. You'll shoot two or three threes a game. Make the defense come and play you higher up. When that happens, there's a driving lane for player X, Y, or Z. Or there's a rotation that can happen to create a backdoor cut. Whatever it may be. Your willingness to take that shot will mean eventually you start making that shot. We've seen it with other bigs over the years. It's going to be something that can help elevate Tice's game to that next level. Again, we saw some of them seals. He's not sealing as much, though, as what he was in the regular season, which is um, disappointing, I would say. But I don't know if the refs are going to be calling it more because they seem to be quite hot on everything at the moment. And we don't want the war on Tice to continue. Please end the war on Tice. But jokes aside, no, I thought this was one of his better performances, one of the best board, best games on the boards I've seen from him. And he dominated. He really did dominate on the low block. He was boxing out everywhere, boxing out from the perimeter and enclosing space. He was scoring off the roll. He was playing high-low. He was facilitating a little bit, if I believe my eyes. Only one. Okay, one assist. Four turnovers playing in the block. Got a steal. Got two blocks as well. That one, that one block off twice was nice. Tice was nice. Let's see what I did there. Yes. <laughs> I think uh, one thing I look for in Tice that I do want him to work on, as you said, it's good for him to hit those threes or shoot them at all. He has to keep going on that. But I do want him to work a little bit more in the post there, taking care of the ball. I do see sometimes like the ball will end up getting fed into him in the low post, and then we just see him kind of get pickpocketed and lose possession. So you want him to work on that a little bit, but 
The other big thing I want him to work on is the fouls, which, as we've said before, with, with the war on Tice, there's only so much you can do. I did get a little bit worried early on in the game. At one point in time, Marcus Gasol had gotten like back-to-back foul calls on Tice and on Smart in like a span of less than 30 seconds. So I, I, I do worry that at some point Nick Nurse is going to try and hone in on that and kind of try and get Tyson foul trouble early, get our defensive players in foul trouble early. So I do want Tyson to try and be careful in terms of foul trouble. There is only so much he can do, but the last thing we need to do is have him get in foul trouble early because that means you're going to be going to Rob Williams more, and that is also a situation where it could get exploited. I think they bring different skill sets to the table. Uh, with Tyson, I think you're going to get more range from shooting. You're getting someone who's going to be getting other guys open off the screen, making those high IQ plays. I think Rob Williams could get there, but right now they just bring two very different skill sets to the table, and it's important to have those kind of change of pace bigs. I think having both of them the way they utilize them in this game is probably the ideal amount of minutes right now. The other thing to touch on as well is the fact that when you have Rob Williams and Daniel Tyson in a rotation between each other, you constantly have a switchable big. So when it's a pick and roll play, they can switch onto the ball handler and they have the lateral quickness. I was looking for the word. They have the lateral quickness to stay with that ball handler. They have the length to kind of alter the shot and force the ball out of his hands. When you're running with those two guys and then you've got guys like JT, you had Shemi played mainly three, might have touched on the four. Grant Williams, you've got a lot of versatile guys that can play that four spot that can also switch onto guys and kind of rotate when you need them to. But back to my point, Kemba Walker and Daniel Tice is a switchable big man rotation on defense can definitely alter and deter pick and roll players. And we saw the way they kind of handled Toronto in their pick and roll sets by switching one of these bigs onto the ball handler because they you could trust that Tyson and Rob Williams were going to be able to stay in front and force the ball out of their hands or force a bad shot. And it happened to perfection. You know, it's one thing I noticed, and this is something we talked about before we got into playoffs, really. We're talking about how the rotation's going to get cut down a little bit, and we're looking at who's going to get minutes, who's not going to get minutes. It's kind of wild how, even with Romeo Langford, he only got four minutes, barely any playing time. They kind of threw him in garbage time. Grant got eight minutes, but overall, we really haven't seen many minutes from the rookies so far. Like Generally, I feel like if the rookies are in there, something's going wrong. So how do you think cutting down on the rotations can affect guys' minutes moving forward? I know that Grant kind of lost his minutes to Rob, especially as soon as Rob had that kind of breakout game. Ever since that point, it's kind of been like all systems go on the time lower train. So I just, I wonder what your thoughts are. Do you think it's a matchup dependency? Do you think they're trying to be careful with Romeo Langford because of his wrist and the ligaments there? Like, what are your thoughts going forward? Honestly, I think it's a, a mixture of three things. One, I think matchups play a big part, as it always will. Two, I genuinely believe that once you're at this point in the season, when you're actually at a position as a franchise that you believe you can compete, that you go with your older heads, your guys that have got that experience, got those playing hours underneath them. And three, I just don't personally feel like, who's Romeo going to be an upgrade on at this point? Because Shemi done a fantastic job on defense. You know what I'm saying? Okay, his shooting isn't there, and I don't think it will ever be a consistent thing for Shemi, and I feel like that's going to be one of the reasons he isn't in Celtic uniform moving forwards. But defensively, he'd done his job, and if you bring Romeo in, can Romeo do that same job against somebody on the Toronto Raptors that generally have good length and good size? I just don't think it's a great matchup for him. 
I do think that long-term, he's going to be a better defender than Shemi. And I also think he'll be a better playmaker and scorer. But right now, Brad Stevens is going with a group that he knows can compete in the playoffs against one of the best teams in the East. And that means you stick with your older head. Grant Williams, the jury's out on Grant Williams. I mean, he's a super high IQ guy. He can, but when I say the jury's out, I'm on about for this season. Like, what can he do this season that's going to elevate you more than Rob Williams or than Shemi? He doesn't have that, that experience yet to be going into playoff games and expecting to be a plus. He can come in and give you spot minutes like he did, like he did today when Shemi was sitting and you needed to rest JT or whoever it needed to be. Then you can throw Grant in there and know he's not going to put a foot wrong, but he's not going to come off the bench and change the course of a game for you. And you have to kind of look at it in a vacuum as what are we doing in this game and what are we doing in this series and who can help us win in this series. And I'm assuming that's what the Celtics are doing. They went with their strongest lineup, which was Brown, Tatum, Ty, Smart, Walker, Williams, Wanamaker, Ojale. I'm fine with that. Like, But long term, you're going to expect to see some Romeo Langford playing I feel like Romeo next season will get increased minutes and then the season after will be where you really see him in the like deep in the rotation. I'm not too worried. I feel like the rotation is using in the minute is the one that's best designed for the Raptors. You're, uh, I just don't know where Langford fits in that tr- transition defensive mold. Langford seems to be more of a, a half-court defense type guy. He's good, when, he's good at defending once the defense slows down, off-ball and on-ball. He has the speed to defend, to defend in transition, but I just don't think he has the frame yet. And I don't think, and I think it's the other way around for Williams, Grant Williams. I think he has the frame, but he doesn't have the transitional speed to be a positive. So for this series, I'd expect to see the rotation stay similar to how they have been. That's my two cents. Definitely moving, fair points. <laughs> moving on to Mr. Kemba Walker, the final point of the game, since we went with rotation before Kemba. I'm fine with that. No, no hate, no shade. Kemba was orchestrating 10 points. They used pretty much all of them came within the flow of the offense. Sorry, not 10 points, 10 assists. All, pretty much all of them came within the flow of the offense. 18 points, three boards, only two turnovers. Considering his usage rate, I'm fine with two turnovers at that higher usage rate. And a steal. What I like about Kemba is the fact that he weren't relying on his speed. Against Philadelphia, it was all about, I'm faster than you. I want to turn the Jets on on every possession because I'm going to get to my spot. You can't do that against Toronto. You can't do that against Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet. And Kemba didn't even attempt it. He came in knowing that it was going to be a different game plan. And he worked the pick and rolls. He worked the dribble drive kickouts. He worked the backdoor cuts. He worked coming off of uh, double screens and corner splits. He, w- he was playing within the system and finding himself in scoring opportunities. And I think it was the third where he really kind of lit it up for a little while. And to be honest, I feel like at the moment, Kemba Walker... Has, is very capable of carrying this team during downward stretches. Big, big, I feel like he's going to be a big factor in this series. And if they, if Boston make it through, he's going to be an even bigger factor against Milwaukee. That change, of, that change of speed he's got, where he's able to just stop on a dime, is just unreal. There was one particular play, I think it was in that hot third that you mentioned, where he ended up getting around a player. And just he had a man who ended up getting switched onto him, and he just stopped. And I... I honestly was like, like my eyes like had like moved, like, okay, he's cut a loop. Wait, no, he's back here. And then like by the time my eyes adjusted back, he already hit the three. So the fact that he's able to do that, I know he ended up tweaking his leg earlier in the game. I was a little bit worried about it. I think people ended up saying it was just like a knee to the quad. So that knee pain kind of flared up a little bit. Obviously, of course, from a Celtics perspective, your eyebrows are a little bit raised, but he went on the rest of the game to ball out. That, that collision happened pretty early on. Um, his collision with Siakam. So 
I'm not super worried. I do want them to, of course, try and manage that. But the thing is, is as you said, Adam, he's just scoring in just droves. Right now, you can lean on him when you need a bucket, especially the way he's shooting the three. There was only one other player who hit more threes than him in this game, and that's Marcus Smart, who we already talked about having a crazy game. Smart was 6 for 10 for the floor. Kemba was 6 for 11. Uh, 5 for 9 for Smart from 3, but Kemba Walker 4 for 7. From so the fact that you've got two guys that are shooting a decent clip for threes, even when, you know, Jason Tatum, you took a little while to get going there. You didn't see him right out of the gates coming out, guns blazing. If you've got other guys, especially with Marcus Smart and Kemba Walker, if those guys are shooting and they're playing in the lineup, lights out like they are right now, this Boston team just becomes even more deadly. I mean, I'm going to be quite honest. I feel like Hayward's the, obviously Hayward elevates this team, but the backcourt of Marcus Smart and Kemba Walker is amazing. Look, you, you don't expect Marcus Smart to go for 21 in every game in this series because it's just not going to happen. He's going to have nights where he goes for four. It, it happens. But Boston's two guards, and this is a flawed stat. I completely understand that plus minus in a single game is a very flawed way to look at things, but it makes my point, so I'm going to go and do it anyway. Marcus Smart and Kemba Walker finished with game-leading plus minuses. Smart led the game with plus 27. Kemba, led, Kemba came in second with plus 25. Again, I'm aware it's a flawed stat. No smoke my way, please. But it proves the fact that these two guys know how to work together. Marcus Smart, if you look at basketball index and then look at the best playmakers to scorers on the Celtics, Marcus Smart is the best playmaker by far on the entire Celtics roster. Kemba Walker is pretty much joint with Tatum. And I think Brown's closing in on that real quick as the best scorers on the team. So having your best scorer and best playmaker playing the one and two position, and your best playmaker just happens to be your best defender as well, that pairing works really well. And those two guys were lighting it up. Again, I don't expect to see Smart go for 21 or average 20 through this series. If he does, then, you know, I'm wrong and I'm happy to be wrong at that point. But I can see him having a game where he goes for eight just as easily as I can see him having a game of where he goes for 20. I'm not a fan, and I've said this multiple times, I'm not a fan of smart shooting 10. Tonight, I'm a fan of smart shooting 10. Makes sense. Overall, I want him to sit between that five to eight shots a night range, just because I feel like that's where he, he's kind of most beneficial. If you get hot, then sure, shoot more. But for me, Kemba Walker's going to be one of those guys that can really turn it on. And I feel like when we haven't seen him really hit playoff mode yet. We haven't seen him turn cardiac yet. And... There's going to be a game in this series or the next where he flips that switch and we're all, all our jaws are going to hit the floor. I, this, no, I'm speechless, man. I'm just stumbling over my words. This roster has got some real firepower on it. And they showed today, and I'm assuming they'll keep showing through this series, that they can defend against the best of them. Last thing I'll say, uh, something someone said to me, so this isn't one of my thoughts, just so nobody gives me credit if it ends up coming to fruition. If it does, tweet me. I'll tell you who said it. <laughs> if it doesn't then I'm not going to tell you because obviously we don't want it to affect them it's um, a bad take <laughs> yeah exactly I'm not I'm not throwing guys under the bus but the way that Boston defended Siakam is kind of a, a precursor to how they're going to defend Giannis if they get to that position we're going to leave it at that so you can go back and watch how they locked off Siakam because they locked that dude right down Siakam was a non-factor in this game let me just point this to you he was a minus 20 and plus minus. I understand it's flood stat in one game, no smoke. He only had four points. <laughs> four points? No, he didn't. He had 13 points. Hey, I don't know where I got four from. Either way, 13 points for the guy that everyone was saying was Toronto's savior. Carl Lowry led them with 17. Carl Lowry, though, I expect as he's 
injury like he played today and I personally I expected him to be on a minutes restriction I was wrong but I do feel like his his offensive output is only going to keep increasing as the series gets deeper and he feels stronger on that leg it was his ankle right yeah it was a he had the same grade ankle sprain I think is Hayward I think that's what they ended up saying it might have been a grade two with Hayward no no Hayward's was a, a grade three I'm saying that Lowry uh, sprain Okay, yeah, but again, once the, as the ankle starts to feel stronger, I'd expect to see Lowry start hitting towards the 30 points a night, which changes the outcome of this game drastically. And then if Siakam actually starts hitting some of his shots, it's going to be a tough series. This is by no way, no means going to be a sweep, in my opinion, and it's not going to be this easy in every game. We will be back on Wednesday, which is after the next game. We don't know what time the next game is going to start yet. That time needs to be determined. And hopefully we'll be talking about two games in a row and we'll be looking at that sweep. But don't, everyone, please don't read too much into game one. Toronto have stunk it up before and they've come back to win the series in real ferocious fashion. Part of me thinks this is a nit nurse ploy to get in their heads of Boston. We'll leave it at that. Say bye, Tim. Bye.